everyone. Welcome to After Dark Analysis. Today I'm going to be speaking to two different people and the start of a series about the legalities of creepypasta adaptations. Hi, I'm the Critical Android. I've worked with Ada before and uh, wanted to be able to sit in on this as we, we dive into those legalities and try to lend some of my experience with, with copyright and knowledge of filmmaking. But it's, it's a minefield of a topic and I'm glad that we have someone else here along with us who knows full well about the filmmaking process and how that ties into copyright. And I am Jacob Rohrbach. I am the owner of the YouTube channel Dark Fire Productions. I'm the writer and director of a series called The Creepypasta Episodes, which has been going on for about six years on that channel. And as the title suggests, I adapt creepypastas into short films. Their channels will be linked below in the description, and obviously I advise you to go check them out. So I have to say, Jacob, I just started watching your material during the weekend as a preparation, and I was... a uh, I always brace myself for what I'm going to find when I uh, dive into YouTube channels that are covering horror. And I've got to <laughs> say, for production values and everything, you do a hell of a job at uh, adapting these things. Well, thank you. You're I'm welcome. very proud of these works. As well, you should be. I mean, like I said, yeah, I never know what I'm gonna what I'm gonna discover when it comes to amateur work in the sense of like you know outside of big production studios and stuff like that. Because uh, oh yeah, I went to uh, went to Ithaca for film school, and boy. Oof, uh, <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> Having to sit through some terrible projects, but you get everything you can out of your actors, the production values are really strong, and the only real weaknesses that you come across are, like, if the source material itself just had, like, things that you question a character might do, but in terms of oh, actually yeah. translating that to a script and going forward with it, pretty goddamn fantastic, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Since I've been doing that 365 days of horror thing, like I've been doing very small reviews on UHM and the big push I always say, because I watch a lot of indies, is like they leaned into their budget, they understood their budgetary constraint, and they worked with that, which is essentially what you're doing with using the same locations and the characters. Yeah. Weird to think this little project that I did in high school just blew up so well. I think at most I spend like $100 per episode too, so like it's very, very low budget. When you're working with, with people who you, you can find for the projects and doing the, the stuff that you can with, with material that you have, it, it's, it's pretty much like the best that it could possibly be, which I, I it, it's, it says a lot for what you're doing in terms of like the editing and putting it all together. Did you do any film school work or anything like that? Uh, no, I don't, haven't actually stepped foot in a film school. I've just kind of self-taught. I worked for a public access station when I was really young, but that was like 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Are you lucky to even get find it at a public access station these days? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I came at a good time when public access was kind of like a bigger thing in town. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I sorely miss is watching those kind of odd... Uh fly-by-night productions that people would try to put together for public access where truly magic was happening on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I still catch a few interesting shows on the local TV stations here, but it's it's kind of just resorted down to just, like, what's going on in the community. It's not as creative as it used to be. But I, I think that's one of the fun parts about public access and translates to what you're doing, too, is that when when you don't have a lot of resources and you're forced to do what you can with what you've got, it forces you to do more creative things with that because you have your vision of what you want to try to accomplish. And it's like, okay, these are the tools that I have to do it with. How can I make it work using this? And it really does push the creator to try to find ways to do that. Oh, for sure. I, I agree wholly. <laughs> now, I don't know what questions like Ada wanted to ask, but I, I know that I'm curious is about to when you were starting things off with season one, what were your goals like going forward with this? Like, what was it you really wanted to accomplish when you were setting out to make that first episode? Like, what did you want to come away with looking back at and saying, yes, I did what I wanted to do? What were those goals? Uh, well, when I was starting the channel, uh, originally the channel started by me and my friend, and my friend eventually left to go do game design. And I just needed a, something to keep the channel going because I kept trying to do constant pilots after pilots. And at one point in high school, I discovered, like, I think it was Grocery List, the creepypasta. And I was reading through it. And I was like, wow, this is something that can adapt really well into a short film, which has been done before. And that just sort of t took off from there. I ended up doing like Eyeless Jack, uh, Barbie. And from there, it's just, it was a series that just kind of stuck with the channel. Like everyone liked it. It is still my most popular series. So 
it just kind of drives the project. Do you ever feel sometimes, because uh, it's the most popular, do you ever feel like creatively limited by that? Like if there's things you want to do, but you think, oh, well, I'm not sure if this is going to be well received, if it's, if it's another adaptation. For sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of specific examples. I think towards season three, I, I started feeling kind of creatively limited. There's not a lot of creepypastas to adapt at this point, which I will probably go la- into later. But I've as if you look at season three, I started branching out into like SCPs, which became more original stories, which is mm-hmm. helping kind of branch out and kind of do more original things, I guess. I don't know if I answered your question, but... No, uh, now in season three, because uh, that's that's the one I wasn't able to hit the most because I was trying to get through all of them. But uh, was there, um, if I'm mistaken, was there kind of like an overarching narrative in season three that was going on? There's an you... overarching narrative in every single season. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. They're all combined universes. And so, yeah, season three, I'm trying to really push the narrative, but it's crumbling apart as I'm trying to end the series. <laughs> uh, as it can happen. Um, yeah. Trying trying to maintain things like that can be difficult. And I know there was uh, the recurring elements of the the Tulpa that was going on. Oh, yeah. In season, in season one from what I was watching, which was fun. I'm glad someone's <laughs> noticing those. <laughs> There's obviously some episodes where you act in or play various parts, and others where you're spending more time uh, behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Which, which do you prefer uh, in terms of like the roles that you do like that? And how do you approach things differently knowing that you're going to be spending more time either in front or behind? I prefer being behind. That's where I'm more creatively powerful. Most of the time when I'm on camera, it's just because I couldn't get an actor or something. But... Behind the camera, I'm better. I, I love doing cinematography. I love writing. I love editing. Those are my absolute favorite parts. Uh, the time, like, when I was playing the Tulpa, that was just because the actor who was going to play him just couldn't make it, so I just uh-huh. took over the role, and somehow that role just kind of stuck. And that's also beneficial, because I see this a lot happen in indies, where you can only get such a small cast, and you kind of have to recycle people over and over again having them instead play parts that are connected to each other makes so much more sense. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it took off. Uh, when season uh, episode four, Tulpa, hit off, the lead actor, Drake, started making jokes about like making it like a longer series, like a connected series. And we started toying with that, I like, think, with Midnight Game. And reusing actors constantly became just kind of a very <laughs> convenient thing to do. Because you also know the quality you're going to get. You work with people long enough. You know you're going to get that. It's always going to be a consistent performance, and it's going to be what you expect. Exactly. Yeah, having a known variable there. Because whenever you're working with people who are, you know, acting quality can vary from person to person. And mm-hmm. as a director, you can just try to get as much out of them as you can. But if you know what you've got to work with, then you know how you can push the actor. And uh, that, that means a lot towards trying to get... Uh, the, a better quality of the performance, especially when you're dealing with something with horror where you need the emotion. You need them to emote. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When when it came time to uh, first like go into things, like you said, the, the first adaptation was Grocery List. What made you choose that one? Was it something that just like stood out to you about it, or was it more, this seems like easy enough to, to start off with? I could definitely say it was just easy enough to start out with. I was, I think at Grocery List, I was filming something else. Uh, we were, I was filming a short film for a film festival, with a few friends, and at the same time we were filming Grocery List, and comparatively, the film for the film festival and Grocery was very complicated compared to Grocery List, which was filmed in I think two days, and it was a simple story required like nothing crazy, no monsters, no elaborate sound design. It was just a, a guy going to his house. It was just the easiest thing to film in like two days between filming sessions. Are there any creepy process that you've tried to approach? Where you thought, okay, well, maybe I can put this to film, but then realize, like, partway through as you were planning it, like, nah, that that's got too, it's too complicated for me to actually get this down, or? Oh, yeah, I have a, I actually have a whole folder of just reject scripts that I've <laughs> tried to do. My biggest one is I tried to do Jeff the Killer at one point, and it just did not translate at all to script. You know, this might be a chicken and the egg question, but it's a little more to the meat of what we wanted to talk about of... Asking permissions, have you ever adapted something and then been denied, or do you not start adapting until you have permission to adapt? As a personal thing, I just I always email the creator first and wait to see if they respond. I think only once I ran into a complication where the guy wanted like royalties and I could not pay him. But for the most part, they're everyone's just so kind about letting me adapt their works. 
Has there ever been any flat-out refusal of, like, somebody saying, no, I'd prefer you not do this? Not really. I think the most is I contacted Slime Beast, if you know who that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that, yes, I can adapt, I just can't monetize it, which was perfectly fine. He didn't He didn't refuse it. He was actually really nice about it. That's cool. Yeah, I, I think, actually, the only issue I've, I've had was a writer, like, a guy writing my script had a little bit of a fuss with me. And he flat out refused to write the script then. Those damned writers, being one myself. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> They're a temperamental lot, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I remember, I think it was a social experiment, um, a really early episode. It was written originally by another guy, but as he was writing the script, he checked out my channel and then said he was too good for the channel to be writing for me, so he just quit. Oh, wow, that just... Yeah, I, I've heard that a bunch of times. It's almost a joke now that you've probably heard. Somebody makes a really bad B film, submits it to Troma, and says, oh, no, they said this was too good for them. I'm like, <laughs> it, it's an ego thing. Just yeah, <laughs> Writers and egos, yeah, there there is that, too. Uh. <laughs> I, I did notice, like, Crit said, the story beats all really tend to work with the creepypasta. You try to keep it fairly close, but still adaptive. yeah. So when you're doing stuff like you did at the end of, what was it, season two, where you kind of have everything come together all at once, yeah. how does that work legally for you? Because technically they're characters from other stories, but you're putting them in this other world that should be considered transformative. Uh, it's a matter of just, like, I carefully chose which characters I'd want to bring back. When I've, <clears throat> I'm trying to figure out, like, a good example... Uh, Vincent Cava's episodes. I talk to him a lot. He's very easy to work with when it comes to his stories, and he's very uh, what flexible when it comes to his characters. So when mm-hmm. I do those like big big endings, I usually just use characters from from stories that I'm allowed to stretch and work with. Oh, okay. It's just a matter of like where people fit in, I guess. Like for Disappearance of Ashley, a lot of it revolves around just kind of convenience. Uh, certain characters fit the mold of the original story really well. Like, uh, oh man, I can't, I can't use that episode. That's not there anymore. Um, the 1999 characters, when I did that episode before, it got removed. Um, oh, okay. They fit into the disappearance of Ashley's story well because it revolves around a kid disappearing, a mother being concerned, and that's a big part of the original dis- disappearance of Ashley's story. So I just kind of hide that all in. Because I, I remember there was one mention of Mr. Bear, and I was just like, well, I didn't see 1999. Yeah, that guy, I vaguely remembered it was on the channel, so I was a little confused by that. Yeah, that's the only case where a writer asked me to take a video down, and that's that's a long rabbit hole in itself. But he well, Was that the whole, he, the person who was updating it wasn't the author thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just, he contacted me, asked me if I removed it, and I, of course do it that's like one of my policies if the writer does not like it and he wants it removed i'm not going to argue i'm just going to take it off i don't know if you saw this in the script um but i'm just i'll clarify it really quickly because we're probably going to end up having to do a deeper dive into it basically Mm -hmm. what happened is 1999 got posted it got bigger and the author didn't realize it and the person that had been updating as the character for 1999 was not the author Mm. yeah so we don't know who was updating it. Uh, that might have been found out. I'm not sure. But yeah, that, that was that was an issue. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. And, yeah. And he messaged me saying, hey, uh, the version you use is a very plagiarized version. And I I would rather it not be on YouTube because it's a bad reflection of me. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Can't really argue with that. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense that people would be upset their work got stolen, even if people didn't realize that's what was going on. Exactly. Fortunately, it's not like they're throwing blame around at other people for for misunderstanding that. It's it's just one of those things where it, it's yeah, it's kind of like the the whole Weird Al situation in a way where people would like throw Weird Al's name onto songs that he didn't create back in the day. Uh, in the day, it's just like Kazaa and LimeWire. I remember that. And Al's just like, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't do that song, uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> If that or the whole Coolio issue. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. as opposed to that, which obviously uh, you, you try to avoid that by getting uh, permission from the authors. And when when you're trying to make changes to adapt a script, do you run those changes by the author first to see how they, how they respond to them? Or do they trust you enough with your care and respect for their story that where, to where you can just go kind of go ahead with it? 
I usually give them a bit of a warning ahead of time saying, hey, I need to adapt this to my budget and my my canon. I tell that to my writers as well, the guest writers I have write episodes. I'll let them know that I'm going to be making a few changes. Uh, nothing too extreme, just the fit the budget I have and the stuff I do. And they are usually trusting enough to let me do that. What's some, some of the best feedback you've received from uh, some of the original creators? Okay, well, I gotta, I gotta find, find some stuff. Well, you don't have to go word for word, but... <clears throat> oh, no, I'm just like, I have to look at, the, I'm looking at the episodes and seeing which, which one stands out. Uh, I think my favorite episode, The Doll with the Lifelike Eyes, the, I couldn't find the original creator for like the longest time, so I just kind of went with it. And the creator actually found the episode and shot me a comment and an email saying how much he really liked uh, my adaptation of it, which meant the world to me because it's one of my favorite no-sleep stories. Oh, that's sweet. But um, No, because your attributions in when you put them in the video description was really helpful for me just on the back end of this. Because honestly, when I looked at half of these stories, either you came up or just YouTube horror narrators came up and I had such a hard time actually finding the original stories because so many adaptations had kind of boxed it out from the original content. Oh, yeah. I, I make sure to credit the stories in every single video I do. And try to give people like a link and, to compare it. And am I correct in assuming if there isn't a link, it's more your original content? Uh, yeah, um, stuff like the SCPs. I'd probably just link the SCPs, but like I'm usually working by myself. Uh, the Rake was an original story written by a writer I hired, and it's strayed really far away from the story. So I don't think I link the Rake story exactly in it. Yeah, no, you you had. I, I've gone through all the research watches more or less for the rake, and you definitely had the most original adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> that one got a little out of hand with the original script. I actually changed so much of it that I had to credit myself as a co-writer because it got <laughs> really bizarre. Oh man, that's yeah. It's it's funny how how things can go off in different directions than what you intend once you're kind of knee deep into it. Yeah. I've seen that happen before, even just with writing casually with, with some of my own scripts, is that once you're kind of into it and you kind of get taken away and realize, oh, uh, I need to either rein this in or change creative direction because this got out of hand fast. Oh, yeah. That's how I felt with uh, Ashley and the rake. Those got, those two got out of hand. Like, no insults towards the writer, but, like, they got really crazy with the budget. Uh, the rake's had like a weird flashback where it went all the way to New York and I'm in Washington and Ashley, you were supposed to see a lot of the chaos that went down, like fissures opening up, buildings collapsing. It's like, how do I, how do I do that with 50 to a hundred dollars? <laughs> it's kind of the similar, uh, same thing happened with the original script for Ghostbusters where Aykroyd and Ramis' script had them like going through trans-dimensional universes and all this stuff. And when the script oh, was, wow. it was, when it was presented to, uh, to the production company, they're like, yeah, um, this is going to cost a lot of money, so you, you need to change this, because there's no possible way we can afford to film this. Yeah. I always refer to things like Disappearance at Ashley as, like, the Jaws effect, where the less ends up being more, because you see it a little bit more from the agent's perspective, because they can't see in, which makes sense, and because I've definitely seen it um, become more popular with creepypasta since they are the big thing going right now where you get what was clearly written to be a story for one thing that just couldn't, for some reason, either the studio didn't believe it in or the creator didn't believe it in enough. They slapped another name onto it. Like I've seen it all over the Amityville horror franchise. It's like 20 odd movies. Prom Night 2 is like that. Uh, the Hellraiser series has just been slap, slap pinhead ev whenever he, everywhere. Yeah. I was just going to say Hellraiser Inferno is a good example of that. Oh, man, I love that movie. <laughs> I, I love it, too. And Scott Derrickson, who uh, wrote and directed Doctor Strange, is the one who wrote and directed that. But it feels like uh, the studio was just like, okay, well, we like the story you wrote. Uh, now put Hellraiser in it. Like, okay. Yeah, it's kind of how kind of how all the sequels have been. It's just been like, hey, we have a story here, but like we could improve with like heavy air quotes with just throwing Pinhead in there somewhere. Yeah, that's how it was with Slenderman for a while. Like that might have been why the studio kind of stepped in and got sold because just some kind of protection for it. it. It really did just be like we want a horror movie, throw in Slenderman. Okay, now it works. And oddly enough, even all of the Die Hard movies except for uh, the fifth one were originally supposed to be other stories 
that got turned into Die Hard. Like the first one, I think was going to be it was supposed to be a uh, uh, something for Sinatra, like a vehicle for Frank Sinatra, a follow up to an action movie he did. Oh, wow, and didn't work out. And then the second movie was like supposed to be something completely unrelated. Uh, but it got turned into a Die Hard movie. The third one was based off a short story called Simon Says that was not connected to Die Hard at all till they adapted it into one. The fourth one was uh, based off of an article for a technology magazine, and they liked the idea of the whole like uh, technological fire sale, so they turned that into a Die Hard movie. And the fifth one was the only one that was written to be a Die Hard movie, and it is the worst one in the series, and I, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> What a weird turn of fate. Yeah, it's it's weird how, you know, adap- sometimes an adaptation, if you tweak it a little bit, you, you can really make something stronger out of it, especially knowing that you have to convert it into a visual medium as opposed to a, a written one. And it also goes into, like, something you probably full well know from working in film. There's the concept of show, don't tell. Yeah. Uh, where in books, they have to tell things because that's the only thing that they can do. But in the case of working with film yeah if you're giving exposition or you're giving background show it don't tell it uh, and th- that goes hand in hand with having to make the changes and adaptations necessary to make something work that's something i i definitely dealt with specifically in a recent episode the scariest thing which was by travis coleman it's a very telling story like it's about a person just being home alone they start thinking someone broke in and they start seeing all these weird like, like it describes what they're seeing in their head these all these made-up scenarios and as i was trying to adapt that story i just came to the conclusion that i don't need to show this like made up scenarios because that's just it's too descriptive it makes sense as a in like a story sense but to film it just it would take you out of the moment and so i just focus on i think i named her camille yeah camille's <clears throat> just kind of terror of being alone in the house can't just have characters say how they feel that makes me angry <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell us about it ada you don't really want to find it fall into a bird box situation where the stock they used to show some of the calamity that was going around actually ended up being real footage of a real disaster. Mm. And the families got very upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it was just on a stock video site that they didn't check what it was for. So you avoided any kind of situation like that, which is really smart. Yeah. I typically just use whatever I make. I actually, I'm sure to not use footage like that and I, besides i think the the horror mainly comes from like not knowing what's going on that's my kind of favorite style of horror where you're just just as confused as the main characters i am curious regarding the Slenderman uh origins adaptation oh boy <laughs> considering all the things that have surrounded that mythos and every direction it's gone off in with you know a documentary about the uh the unfortunate attempted murder that happened yeah the the Marble uh, Marble Hornets uh, the the Sony I think Sony had the rights to a movie for it and did one. How were you able to approach that project? Because obviously it's one of those things that's so big you kind of can't ignore the idea of covering it. Yeah. But how did you approach that one in terms of the source material, the uh, original creation of it, and and knowing what the expectations are regarding that mythos? Well, I was lucky to have a overarching series, which is the first thing that really worked in my favor. Uh, the scientists from Tulpa, they had a lot more lore to them that the actors and I discussed, mm-hmm. which really helped build it up. Um, the start of the SCP Foundation, which kind of fizzled out towards the end. Um, but I ended up watching all the Slenderman movies and all the ARGs and stuff just to get a good idea of, like, the character of Slenderman and how I could create, like, even use a monster like that. And I've kind of just come to learn that the less you see of him, the better, I guess. Yeah, I can agree with that, especially with how kind of overused he's been in in media over the last, like, what, 10 years now, almost now? Oh, yeah. And, like, all the long-form adaptations of him show him either way too much or don't focus on him enough. So, like, doing a small origin story kind of melding him into a monster that someone else created. Kind of like a, a Frankenstein story, but low budget. Worked a bit more in my favor, I'd say. If I have my timelines right, it seems like Slenderman was one of the few that you did when it was really popular, because you got Candle Cove and The Rake. 
I know the rake was going around pretty popular as well, but I don't think there were too many adaptations of it. But you got Candle Cove before Channel Zero got it. Yep. It, does popularity weigh into you, or I really don't care if I get noticed or not. I'm just doing this for fun. <laughs> I have a weird streak of hitting things right as I get popular. I think the main reason why Creepypasta was such a success was because I hit it just as Creepypastas were taken off. I think also that kind of helps with the the Slenderman thing is because you focus so much on an origin element of it that it it's so different from like what others have put forward that you can avoid worrying about like any kind of a copyright hit from a production company that's like no that Slenderman IP is is ours now or whatnot you've you've kind of deftly avoided some of those elements. Oh yeah, I. I... Like I said, I watched a lot of lot of Slender productions. I think I marathoned Marble Hornets, Tribe Twelve, and Everyman Hybrid, the the main trilogy, just to understand like all the the nuances and the typical Slenderman tropes, just so I can actively avoid them. Uh, I'm also curious about like some of the visual effects you use, like a uh, camcorder is is a good one where yeah, uh, it, it, pretty effects heavy. Was that is that daunting knowing that you're going to have to rely on things like that, or how do you approach one that that does rely more on knowing you're going to have to use effects like that? It's a little little daunting. I don't. I think computer effects are my least favorite thing about editing. I it just takes a lot of my time. I try to keep everything practical, just mainly for convenience sake. But things like the the rest of the season of season three, it's going to be relying a lot on effects. Season one did some effect stuff, but that took even more time because I think I did all of it through Photoshop. But as things, times go on, I've been relying more and more on effects just so I can raise the bar of what I normally do, I guess. Is there anything, uh, any of the ones that you've done where you could look back and say, uh, maybe we strayed a bit too far from what the original was, aside from uh, the rake being mentioned? But are there any others where you feel like, uh, if I could do that over again, I, I would take a different approach to it to maybe adapt the original better? I would say that's, let's see, uh, probably the Melissa the Heartless. That one was a bit of a disaster behind the scenes and just, I think, could have been done so so much better. One of the things that I, I found as a, as a writer is that sometimes I'll go back over things that I've done in the past and look at them and be like, hey, that actually holds up pretty well. And then there's others where it's like, oh my god, what the hell was I thinking with that? Yep, yep, I feel that. That's definitely uh, Melissa. I've 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 wa- rewatched it like twice. I've ma- I forced myself to watch it twice, and it's I think easily the worst worst episode and that could have just been uh, improved with time. When you look back at things and see things that you could improve upon or could have been done better, what are the the big lessons you take from that that you have applied going forward that you feel makes your material stronger? Editing mainly, just rewrites uh, constantly, looking for feedback. Um, uh, rewatching stuff, just really giving it, giving everything time to cook and work. I guess that's the word for it. The time and the cooking is a big thing. Yeah, yeah. Because originally season one, it would just be like film, film, done, edit, get it out there. But now season three takes such a long time because I am getting a script back from a writer, or I'm I'm finishing up a script. I let it sit for a couple days, then I read through it again, kind of work on it, fine-tune it, make sure the characters are interesting to follow. That's a very important thing about making horror movies, I think, is making sure you're interested and invested in these characters and not just bodies to be wound up on camera. you got to genuinely like be interested in what, they, what, what their motivations are. Yeah, there's a phrase I often use when it comes to the characters when, uh, in stories that I say that we love a good story, but we fall in love with characters. And if you yeah. can maintain them going forward with something... Uh, and especially when you're reusing them or planning to reuse them, that's what's going to draw people in. A, a story that's maybe weak in terms of plot beats can be saved with with well-rounded characters. Or another thing I've been saying is a, a two-dimensional story can be salvaged by three-dimensional characters. Oh yeah, I I agree with that. That makes that that's exactly it. Horror genre is filled with tropes, so characters are typically what we're looking at. It, there are a lot of the same story beats over and over again, but. We keep watching them and we keep loving them because people have different interpretations and different ways to tell this story. Yeah. Aside from Jeff the Killer being one of the big ones that you mentioned being so difficult to adapt, 
Are there any other stories that people have been, like, clamoring for in the comments and saying, when are you going to do this? I remember one comment stuck out the most. Uh, someone wanted me to do Abandoned by Disney, which I I don't think I'd ever be able to do. <laughs> one, just for Disney. Two, it's just so hard <laughs> to, like, get a whole abandoned theme park. Yeah, with the budget you're working on, I'm not sure uh, that how plausible that one's going to be able to be done. <laughs> a few requests, requests for Ben Drowned, which I did have a script for which I just ended up dropping for time constraints and just budgets. Because you could do, what was it, Escape from Tomorrow, but they got sued pretty heavy when they... Wasn't that the one that the gorilla shot inside of Disney to yeah. make a Disney horror movie? Yeah, I'll just sneak into like one of the abandoned scene parks and just film a found footage movie in one take. So everything that has been approved by someone has stayed approved? For the most part, yeah. I have never, outside of 1999, I have not received any, like request to take down my my stuff it's usually the authors like it and then they either just forget about it or they share it i guess i've stayed far away from any like drama with any authors luckily with my methods yeah the only reason i'm asking is i i can't remember offhand i'm going through my notes now did you ever do anything by snuff bomb snuff bomb yes uh name a story by them because i'm i don't i'm not familiar Uh I want to say he was the one that did Laughing Jack. He's the one that's uh, got the whole issue going with Spirit right now. Hmm. Uh, I actually was thinking about doing Laughing Jack at one point, but again, I was, it's one of those stories that I, I just could not, that just did not translate well to the script at all. The elements and the thing that legally I think both Crit and I were really confused about is when we look at something, because Slenderman's just the easiest example of this because there's mm-hmm. so many adaptations, is it seemed to have this very folklore thing about it. A lot of people assume it's public domain when it's not, just because so many people have done something with it. But yeah. now that bigger companies have gotten involved, Sony actually sued somebody for trying to make an adaptation of it that they felt was too similar so now the question is, are adaptations like yours basically being grandfathered in, or are they going to try and retroactively go back and say, no, this is ours? Uh, that's the one thing I'm always worried about with these, with this series, especially since I'm working with other people's material. I am kind of am at liberty of them su- selling the rights to someone else and then the company taking them down, which, again, like 1999, I am not opposed to doing, I guess. But <clears throat> for the most part, I usually, like with Slenderman, I... I grabbed it before, like, Sony started making productions. I think by the time I released it, the big controversy with Slenderman just happened. And otherwise, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm legally kind of at the liberty of all the all, all the authors and the rights of these characters. And you haven't been hit with any blowback uh, legally about Candle Cove, now that that's become a bigger adaptation? No, I haven't so far, surprisingly. That's that's fantastic. Because that, that, that's one of the ones that I would have figured with, with Channel Zero, they'd be trying to... Uh, either you want to try to control intellectual property if you have it, and I can imagine easily imagine them trying to strike out against people who were trying to, to do their own take on it. Yeah, I remember telling one of the actors once the episode came out and Channel Zero got announced, I, I just told him I'm just always waiting for Sci-Fi to give me an email just to tell me to remove it. Uh, as long as you're aware of the possibility of it too. I mean that that's a I think something that as Ada was mentioning too, where people just assume that things are in public domain or that they can be used. And it's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of copyright law that a lot of people have or think that, uh, you know, fair use applies to things where, yeah, obviously, in this case, it normally wouldn't, uh, which is why you, you're seeking to get permission. And also why if permissions change, you're kind of over a barrel with it. There's, there's not an awful lot you can do. Exactly. The one thing I have been looking for, looking for in Season 2 and 3 is on the Creepypasta wiki, they always have the copyright at the bottom. And I actually make a point out of it to read those copyrights and make sure which stories I am allowed to adapt and monetize if I need to. And look through all the creative commons and stuff. So at least on that point, I have more of a legal high ground when they actively allow. And the messaging them afterwards is just more of a personal thing, just to make sure out of respect that they're okay with it. Obviously, you have adapted some no-sleep stories, but it seemed to be a constant issue with horror narrators going against Reddit. And now that Reddit YouTubers are blowing up, there seems to be the issue again, where people seem to believe, well, if it's posted publicly on Reddit, it's public domain, when a lot of the no-sleep writers are like, no, this isn't, I still have copyright on it. Mm -hmm. And people aren't asking permission is like the big gripe of, I just want to be asked, but you're already doing that. Yeah, uh, like, my nightmare was by Superlone, um, 
Voices in the Sphere box, I, I asked both those authors immediately and waited for them to get back to me before I even started writing the script. It's kind of like how, uh, like you mentioned, Weird Al, how he goes out and asks all the artists, because he doesn't really have to, but he, he does out of respect. I kind of adopt the same thing. I'm not, I'm not going to just take some guy's story without him knowing and make it my own. And circling back to what we were talking about, about people getting popular and then kind of coming back or possibly coming back. Oftentimes, yeah, they will something that was done kind of liberally with copyright before. Once it comes under a bigger umbrella from a bigger company with more money, sometimes they will try and go back and do things. Mm-hmm. But every once and again, we see it work the other way. Um, I use this and it's a really weird example. So bear with me. Snakes on a plane. Ooh. There was a leak that came mm-hmm. out that just said there's a movie called Snakes on a Plane. Samuel L. Jackson will be in it. People went nuts and started doing all this fan artwork and all of these things. And the company that held it, I want to say Sony, was actually really smart and didn't try and pull the leaks back. So the buzz got huge on the internet and they actually went back and do reshoots so they could have Samuel L. Jackson say, I want to get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane because everyone expected that line due to all the fan art, but they didn't have it in originally. Oh, damn. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. So that caused the film to be much more popular than it would have been before. So that was a really smart way to keep the copyright, but still allow some creative freedoms from fans to get your own buzz going. Like the whole thinky getting the patent on those Jane hats from Firefly. All these people that have been knitting them on Etsy when they weren't available commercially started getting in trouble. And it really just got a lot of backlash against Fox from a fan base that already kind of hated them. (laughs) So it can work either way. Sometimes it's great to let fans kind of do what they want. Sometimes it's awful. Yeah, for sure. Which is also going to make things even more complicated with what's happening with the EU and you know, if certain videos are even going to be available for, for airing on YouTube over there. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's weird how copyright law changes because the U.S. tends to be a bit more, in some respects, very liberal in terms of creative license with what you can do to alter things. But uh, in other countries... It's far stricter. Like, for instance, in South Korea, they, and and, and also in China, there's more of a, I guess, protection uh, when it applies towards properties that are invented within that country, as opposed to ones that exist outside of there, to where if you're in Korea or China and you create a very similar product to something else, uh, the government will try to protect the, the copy more than they will the original because the original comes from overseas. So it's more of that cultural kind of almost an isolationist perspective on things, but with the U.S., there's certain things that you just can't copyright. Kind of straying away from the idea of horror, but when they were making all those video game clones of Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2 specifically, when that blew up, and Capcom was trying to sue other people saying, well, you can't, you know, make a fighting game that's, like, identical to ours. And the court said, well, yeah, they can, because you can't copyright something so broad as the mechanics of a fighting game. You could copyright the characters, and you could copyright the story, but just because each game has, you know, down, diagonal, forward, Hadouken, you can't can't copyright that stuff. So you're, you're kind of also protecting yourself when you take some creative liberties in terms of what you add, and if you can create original characters to go with something, but th- there's still certain elements that, that they can attack people with on copyright, and it's such a weird amalgamation of of different laws and court rulings, whether it's in a district court or Supreme Court, uh, that that make this patchwork of legalities that is a mess to navigate. And it it makes me concerned going forward about when people try to, you know, make something uh, a creative use of something else. It's it's very Mm -hmm. difficult, and people in the music industry will know that from from sampling for over the, you know, the decades. But yeah, I've got to respect everything that you're doing to try to do right by the original creators, because at least if you're doing well by if you're doing right by them, that's something. Whether companies later on uh, claim the rights to it and make a mess of it later on, at least you're doing right by the original artist. Yeah, exactly. That's the mindset I've been going with. I remember when I was work for the public access station, like copyright law was like one of the first things they ran you through, and that just kind of stuck with me, I guess. Because yeah, bring it back to horror, um, I, I addressed this in another video, but the story of Frankenstein is totally public domain. But the green big boots, bolts and neck, flat top haircut is absolutely copyrighted by Universal. Mm-hmm. So if you do an adaptation mm-hmm. of Frankenstein in no way, shape or form, it's supposed to look like the Frankenstein from Universal. It can be very hard <laughs> to understand what you can and cannot do. 
It just takes a lot of lot of research and a lot of time. Because I, I saw you did uh, adopt some Lovecraft, which I'm assuming oh, yeah. since when I went to his website, it was up on there. It's public domain. Yeah. I believe with literature, it's 100 years, 99 yeah, years, something along those lines. I think it's about a century to 90 years, if I remember the the student, uh, what I was taught. And that's that was like one of the defining factors of doing H.P. Lovecraft, because most of his stuff is in the public domain. Anyone can use it. Which is why a lot of like low budget indie productions adapt Lovecraft because they don't have to pay anything for it. All right, and why the Cthulhu mythos has been able to expand like it has been and has become a bigger part of the uh, pop culture zeitgeist is because they've been able to to go ahead and basically adapt that as how they choose. Nothing stopping them. Do you see yourself in the future uh, going towards like some of those older stories? Because you you did mention before that you're kind of running out of creepypasta to adapt. So where do you see yourself going in the future for things? I have a lot of original stuff in the works now. Um, I just released my first feature film, uh, Abstractions, which was a completely original project. Right now, as of right now, I'm going to probably be taking a break from the horror since I've been doing it for five years. But someday I might return to adapting some stuff. Um, I have no real idea for that that future. I'm just trying to find a better creative outlet for, for now. Well, now that you fit, uh, finished the, the film, do, just do a plug here for it. Where can people view it? It's on my channel right now. Um, it's just labeled Abstractions Feature Film. It's free for the public to watch whenever they want. And what uh, what do you see yourself wanting to do in terms of taking that break from horror? What other creative ventures are uh, in your future? Well, I'm working on a second feature film right now called The World Ends With Us, which is a time travel drama, kind of a very 180 from where I'm, I'm now, at now as well as a short film called Hoodie, which has just been casted, and I just sent out the script. But it's more of a... Uh, I don't know what to describe it. I think it's more like a coming-of-age story. Just kind of see what... Test the water, see how the audience reacts to this just completely new stuff. Uh, with some of the stuff you've already done, too, you've been able to pull in some some help from some other YouTube uh, content creators. Uh, <laughs> one of them, actually, uh, I know quite well, uh, Ada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was in that episode. <laughs> for for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Ada does some voice acting uh, over the phone for for one of the uh, for one of the episodes, and uh, uh, better than a slow clap. I'm doing like a a moderate clap here for you, Ada. Good job. <laughs> yeah, dude. Just for the record, I don't voice act. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that was the first time doing that. I've done one more thing for CZ's World, where I played a principal, because in this one I did for Jacob, is I played a mother. So I'm just like, okay, clearly, I, I have a type now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that was for, uh, what was it? It was the uh, Smiling Dog JPEG? Yep. Yeah, and uh, Ada, Ada lent her talents to that one. I noticed, and just since we were talking about view times... You've done some less popular ones. You've done some more popular ones. You've done kind of Smiling Man and Smile Dog are the two that come into mind immediately that haven't been like these massive forces like the Rake or Slender Man, but they're definitely passed around in fan favorites. Do you see more off of those or about the same? I typically do see more out of the popular episodes. I I try to mix in like lesser known and more popular, but yeah, Smiling Man and Smile Dog typically get, like, the most views, but, like, compared to Eyeless Jack or Tulpa, it's kind of, like, a good in-between from what I normally get. So I'm trying to get, like, a good range here. Like, uh, this episode I released recently, A Beautiful Person, only gets, like, 100 view, 150 views, which is normal for, like, lesser-known episodes. But then Smiling mm -hmm. Man will get double that, and then bigger episodes, like, if I did Jeff the Killer, would probably get triple or quadruple. Uh, what feedback have you received from other people in the kind of larger horror community on YouTube? Uh, I haven't really received much feedback. Uh, Rain likes my work. She's told me a few times. She's advertised for me. Um, for the most part, I don't really hear much feedback from anyone. Oh, no, not, not sad. Uh, but so much of what you've done has, has stayed true to the source material while, again, doing everything you can with the resources you have to to make the best quality product possible. And you deserve more recognition than what you're getting for that. And then... Uh, yeah, that that should hopefully translate to more attention to the original projects, which uh, I I hope the best for you on that too, because it's it's almost like somebody's going out and 
in a band and performing cover songs all the time. And the people love it. They love the cover songs. And he's like, all right, let's bring out some original material. And the band's all into it. Yeah, let's do the original stuff. But the crowd is kind of like, oh, we like the covers an awful lot. It's like, no, you're going to like this stuff too. Trust me, it's great. And it can be so hard to introduce new intellectual properties to people. Yeah. When when they have expectations. And hell, we see that even in the film industry at large where companies are more willing to do remakes and sequels than they are introduce new ideas because there's this seems to be this internal inertia, if you will, of people trying to apply themselves to watching something new, but it's easy to just roll into something familiar. Oh, for sure. It's I've definitely considered that when I'm starting to transition into the new period. Right now I'm if you look at my channel you can see that I'm releasing the original stuff in the mix of creepy pasta, kind of the help at least uh, transition people. Abstractions is actually doing pretty well for what it is. It has the same view count as a creepypasta, which is very, very nice to see. I thought it'd get a lot worse, I guess. With a longer piece, you have better view times, hopefully. So Yeah. And sometimes it, this isn't a necessarily a negative thing because it always sounds like an insult when I say small channel, but it's absolutely not because I'm a small channel still as well. When you have a smaller channel, you have a smaller audience, but you get to have that public platform to learn and build and hone things because your work has gotten progressively better. Like each season, you can see what you learned in the last season and you applying that. So now you learned and adapted with working with other people's work. And now that you're doing your own stuff, you can take everything you've learned. You can take the audience you've built and hopefully grow on that. Yeah, that's that's the plan, at least. See how well the execution goes. Aside from uh, aside from abstractions, what other original material have you done on the channel that you would like to point people to to say, hey, maybe you don't have time to watch like the full movie, but if you want to get an idea of what I, I do outside of adaptations, this is something you should view that I think shows off me in my best light. I just actually released a short film called Anguish, which is kind of in the same, it's kind of a sister piece, I think they call it, of abstractions. It's another black and white art film. I do my own original writing, like uh, short stories, and I released uh, a story called House of Ashley like two years ago, which kind of ties in the creepypasta, but also is a completely original project. Outside of that, I really do not have much to show on my channel outside of creepypasta. I've been so focused on that. There's two different challenges when it comes to adapting things versus creating your own things. With an adaptation, you're trying to remain faithful to the material as much as you can, which presents its own challenge. But then with writing your own material, you have to make sure that the universe that you're creating is consistent and all, all, all that stuff. Do you find it more challenging to create on your own or to adapt because of the, the restraints that are put on you when you have to adapt something? It is It is so much easier to adapt. The world is already kind of established there for you. You just kind of have to put the puzzle pieces together. But with an original project, you have to create everything on your own. You got to come up with these characters. You got to give them dialogue. You got to give them motivations. But like with Creepypasta, they're so easy to make because like the story's there, the dialogue's mostly there. You know uh, where the characters are going. It's it's so much easier to adapt than to make something original. But I imagine at least the 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 benefit of the original is that it feels so much more rewarding to be able to look back and say, "Hey, I created this world." Oh, for sure. Um, that's that's mainly the reason why I'm like ending Creepypasta in the third season. I'm just. It's become just less fulfilling to make these things. It's just become, I'm just pumping these out like no, nobody's business. I can easily write a creepypasta script in like one week and have it edited, ready to be shot and everything. I've done it several times before, but like <clears throat> the original stuff takes like months and months of work and planning. So I can definitely say the uh, adaptation is so much easier. Is there any other things on copyright that you wanted to hit on? I, I think we've pretty much answered everything there because, um, the whole intent of this project was we wanted to look at creepypasta adaptations like yours, but look at them from a legal standpoint because we really hadn't seen those covered and we just, there's so many issues it seems like. Oh yeah, I'm constantly fighting. I, well, in, I'm not fighting, but like I'm constantly in worry about copyright law and just how vague creepypastas can be since they're posted online for free. People assume it's public domain. And after season one, well, during season one, I was under the same impression that all this stuff was just free to use. But as season two started coming around, I started looking more into it, and I've I've come to the realization: hey, these aren't these are copyrighted by people. They they own these things, and they would not be happy if they saw their stuff just kind of stolen like that. Stolen's a terrible word for it, but like you know what I mean. Misappropriated. 
yeah, that that's it. <laughs> As Kurt and I were kind of talking about the other day, we kind of had to go with actual adaptations because as much as YouTube narrators are fantastic and they do great work, there's so many of them. It's like we would never finish. It's like we're two people. So going with people that are adapting like you that are actually making short films is kind of where we're going from here. It's like short to, short films to feature length. And it's such an interesting market now that at least studios are trying to catch up with the market and try to release things. I think they last year they made a Rake and a Midnight Man movie, which was interesting. <laughs> and like studios are now just like it's like studios are now just discovering what the creepypastas are and are trying to really cash in on it. I wouldn't be surprised if No End House is like one of the next ones to come along to be made into something bigger. Yeah, they did uh, No End House already. Yeah. Oh, it already has been. Yeah, first Channel Zero. Oh, I completely missed that then. So apparently, I I, uh, I would not be surprised because it's already <laughs> happened. There you go. Look at that. Because yeah, um, I was I knew there was another property I wanted to ask about. It was No End House because we'd already talked about the Rake, Slender Man, and Candle Cove. But the other one that did get big recently is No End House because I believe that was their last season, wasn't it? I have no idea. I stopped following Channel Zero after Candle Cove. It just got weird. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Candle Cove was. <laughs> See, I'm not the only one who wasn't following it. <laughs> Good sir, I have written you an entire list of everything I could find. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I forgot some things. I've been busy, Ada. Jesus. But yeah, no end house. Uh, that has, and I'm assuming you haven't received any word back on that one yet either, but I, I imagine if there's one that you've got to be, like, hunched over thinking, you know, t don't take my baby, don't take my baby, it's got to be no end house next. Uh, that's a one I have a, such a fondness for. It was one of my favorite episodes for season one. I'd really hate if it went down. <laughs> Yeah, and I know people who cite No End House as one of the ones that uh, got them into creepypastas in general. It, it's a big one in the community. Oh, for sure. It was, I think it was one of the first few I've read. In the, even making that episode, I even went into the sequels and gone to that kind of bizarre lore. Because um, you also have Danielle, who was the main focus. It was Danielle, correct? In uh, No End House? That uh, I, it was, his name's Dan, but then I changed it to Danielle because I had my friend Madeline <laughs> available. Hey, that that wouldn't be the first gender swapped character that was availability. <laughs> yeah, because you have D Danielle come back and No End House is a recurring thing, so that that is definitely a linchpin of your universe. I'm curious, by the way, speaking of uh, availability when it comes to things, uh, in Candle Cove, I was wondering, based off of the the specific camera angles and the cuts, were you not able to have all four actors discussing? The, viewing the the episodes at at one time. Yeah, uh, people people started noticing when certain actors aren't available, and I think it's kind of funny. Yeah, because I, I was looking at it from like my perspective, having like like I said, worked uh, went to a film school. It's like, all right, well, we have one angle where I'm seeing two people, and I have another angle where I'm seeing the other two people. I'm betting they're not on set at the same time. And I was curious if I had if that was actually what happened. That is usually the case for like a lot of these episodes. Um, the way I film these is because I'm I'm just using my friends and when they're on their free time. Right. I tell them when we we start productions that I work entirely around their schedule. I'm not afraid to do just shot reverse shots sometimes if I can make it work. But Candle Cove is an interesting story because we've actually shot that that film three different times. And oh, man. I lost the first footage where they were all on set. The second one got too windy and only like two of them were on set. And I think by the third time, I think they were all on set. It was just a matter of my camera limitations because I had a really weird lens that only... It was a fixed zoom, that's the thing. It was a fixed mm. zoom, so I couldn't capture everyone on, on camera. I, I still love what you did with that episode with uh, with the puppetry and everything, too, to really capture what the original Candle Cove program mm -hmm. would have been, uh, using air quotes that no one can see because this is an audio <laughs> medium. Uh, but the original program would have been... And, man, it just... It stood out like you like we had talked a little bit about how public access television. It looked like one of those shows like had come to life, and I was like, "Man, this is a uh, this is above and beyond what was necessary." It was fantastic. Uh, that's my favorite behind the scenes because I handmade all those puppets. I hand painted the backgrounds. I made it look like Blues Clues, but with puppets. Yeah, and I still have the skin taker somewhere in this house because I it's it's one of my pride and joys of just creating those puppets and making them actually work. You know, you could definitely see the production values that went into that particular episode. I think my my friend Drake, his his favorite puppet was um, uh, the Laughing Jack because it 
on set, it was just me stuffed into like a little cardboard box, moving a mouth while he voiced it back. <laughs> oh, that's 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 adorable though. Trying to just picture that. <laughs> no, I re- I really loved all the work that went into that because you could just see like this is above the the normal fare for what you would find for a YouTube project. Especially, like I said, going into work with all of the puppetry and, and making it look like something that you would have seen on TV back in the day from a local television station. It, it, it was really good. The whole idea of Creepypasta is try to do horror but differently than studios would. Make, just rely more on atmosphere or on the characters or just the weird things that are going on. That That's definitely something with fan films and what kind of sets them apart. As you can tell when somebody has paid attention to the genre, has their likes, has their dislikes, and goes with that. It, it's not somebody that came in trying to make money off of it. Exactly. I was at a film festival last year, and the programmer actually put a fan film in. He put in Never Hike Alone, which I don't know if you've seen that yet. but I haven't heard of that. He said, he's like, I never, ever thought I'd put in a fan film, but it was really, really well done. And it was somebody that clearly understood, because it, um, it was a fan film for Friday the 13th. Really? So you, yeah, this was somebody who had clearly watched those films, knew the mythos, knew everything about them, and took all that information and made their own thing. It looks like somebody that paid attention to the genre, respects the things in it, can follow the tropes, but at the same time deviate when it needs to happen to make it make sense and work. Oh, for sure. I think a, a good comparison would be like the, the Blair Witch Project and the recent Blair Witch movie, and just how like totally different they were. You could tell like one was more like an independent feature and the other one was made by studios. Because I, I was thinking like when I saw Blair Witch, the, the new one in theaters, it was just full of jump scares and just cheap, cheap horror moments that just delved away from the original project, which barely had anything going on in it. Then how how weird the found footage genres become, because you have some found footage elements in your stuff, but it's never just a straight up found footage thing. It's Oh, yeah. A camcorder is a good example of that. I I have a soft spot for found footage, and I really like doing like little bits like that in camcorder and stuff where I can just do first person shots. I love those. Yeah, it's, it's just weird to see the quality difference of when we were watching the first Purge film. There's all of that camera footage at the beginning mm-hmm. of just different bits of Purge footage, and we had some obnoxious twelve year olds behind us. They were actually like getting legitimately scared and reacting to the high def things, whereas my husband and myself, who are older and grew up with VHS, were reacting to like the CCTV cameras. But <laughs> everything looking so clear, I'm like that. That's no, no, it's not real. <laughs> We definitely are seeing generational differences in overall how things look and feel. Oh, for sure. Well, I think I am tapped out of questions. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we've handled copyright pretty much as much as we can. I really have nothing else to add on copyright. I've just It just simply goes down to I ask the authors, I make sure it's not like the original story is not already like already says you can't adapt this and such like that. My main my main policy is if if an author doesn't like an episode and they want it removed, I will happily remove it without argument. I'm at their liberty. They didn't pay me to do this. I didn't pay them. And then after that, it's just wait and see if, if something else happens with uh, the rights to the story and you have to re- kind of react. Yeah. Because I know you said, like, um, Slime Beast said you couldn't monetize it, which is also an addendum some people will put on of. Yeah. Well, yes, you can adapt my thing, but you can't make money off of it. Yeah, which I'm perfectly fine with. The way I discussed it with him, I'm I'm still thinking about possibly doing one of his episodes, but and it it's perfectly reasonable if he doesn't want me making money off of it. And it's his project. He's if he's not making money off of it, no one else should. It makes perfect sense. Assets you use, by the way, too, when it comes to music, uh, you're using music sources largely from Kevin Cloud, yep. who has gone on record of basically saying it's like, yeah, my music my music can be used for free, but you have to make sure that I'm credited for it. Yeah, which I always do, make sure. Yep. Which I'm slowly trying to get away from with my original stuff. I'm trying to make, like, either make my own music or hire someone else to do it. Because I'm happy you brought up the whole, like, not making money off of it. Because there are, there is a belief, another misnomer within the horror community or just overall adaptive community that believes if you're not getting money off of it, it's fine to use copyrighted material. Oh, which, yeah. That's... Legally, it's just not the case. <laughs> that just makes no sense. I've seen channels with like 40, 50 subscribers or even 100 going, well, I can play copyrighted music because I'm not making money off of this. And it's like, that's, that's not how copyright works. 
Yeah, I know. I knew a few channels like back then. A few of my friends, I think, said that, and I've led them the other way, saying, "Yeah, that's not how it. That's not how that works." I, I do appreciate you bringing that up. So I'm like, okay, let's just clear up that misnomer now. Like legally, that's not the case. Like you will get your ass handed to you. <laughs> it seems like a lot of people just kind of have these like this is how they want the law to work. Yeah, and they kind of convince themselves that that's how it does work. It, it it's still a minefield walking through copyright law. Thank you for listening. I'd like to take a moment out to thank my patrons, Scotty Robot, Carla Hoffman, Gani. If you'd like to contribute to this channel financially, there's one tier. It's $1. You get a thank you in each video and Discord access. Even if you don't contribute to this channel financially, your time and viewership is always appreciated. Thank you.